Part One, Gorgias, by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Introduction. In several of the dialogues of Plato, doubts have arisen among his interpreters as to which of the various subjects discussed in them is the main thesis. The speakers have the freedom of conversation. No severe rules of art restrict them, and sometimes we are inclined to think, with one of the dramatis personae in the Theatetus, that the digressions have the greater interest. Yet in the most irregular of the dialogues there is also a certain natural growth or unity. The beginning is not forgotten at the end, and numerous allusions and references are interspersed, which form the loose connecting links of the whole. We must not neglect this unity, but neither must we attempt to confine the Platonic dialogue on the Procrustean bed of a single idea. Compare Introduction to the Phaedrus. Two tendencies seem to have beset the interpreters of Plato in this matter. First, they have endeavored to hang the dialogues upon one another by the slightest threads, and have thus been led to opposite and contradictory assertions respecting their order and sequence. The mantle of Schleiermacher has descended upon his successors, who have applied his method with the most various results. The value and use of the method has been hardly, if at all, examined either by him or them. Secondly, they have extended almost indefinitely the scope of each separate dialogue. In this way, they think that they have escaped all difficulties, not seeing that what they have gained in generality they have lost in truth and distinctness. Metaphysical conceptions easily pass into one another, and the simpler notions of antiquity, which we can only realize by an effort, imperceptibly blend with the more familiar theories of modern philosophers. An eye for proportion is needed, his own art of measuring, in the study of Plato, as well as of other great artists. We may hardly admit that the moral antithesis of good and pleasure, or the intellectual antithesis of knowledge and opinion, being and appearance, are never far off in a Platonic discussion. But, because they are in the background, we should not bring them into the foreground, or expect to discern them equally in all the dialogues. There may be some advantage in drawing out a little the main outlines of the building, but the use of this is limited, and may be easily exaggerated. We may give Plato too much system, and alter the natural form and connection of his thoughts, under the idea that his dialogues are finished works of art. We may also find a reason for everything, and lose the highest characteristic of art, which is simplicity. Most great works receive a new light from a new and original mind, but whether these new lights are true or only suggestive will depend on their agreement with the spirit of Plato, and the amount of direct evidence which can be urged in support of them. When a theory is running away with us, Criticism does a friendly office in counselling moderation, 
and recalling us to the indications of the text. Like the Phaedrus, the Gorgias has puzzled students of Plato by the appearance of two or more subjects. Under the cover of rhetoric, higher themes are introduced. The argument expands into a general view of the good and evil of man. After making an ineffectual attempt to obtain a sound definition of his art from Gorgias, Socrates assumes the existence of a universal art of flattery or simulation having several branches. This is the genus of which rhetoric is only one and not the highest species. To flattery is opposed the true and noble art of life, which he who possesses seeks always to impart to others, and which at last triumphs, if not here, at any rate in another world. These two aspects of life and knowledge appear to be the two leading ideas of the dialogue, the true and the false, in individuals and states. In the treatment of the soul, as well as of the body, are conceived under the forms of true and false art. In the development of this opposition, there arise various other questions, such as the two famous paradoxes of Socrates, paradoxes as they are to the world in general, ideals as they may be more worthily called. 1. That to do is worse than to suffer evil, and 2. That when a man has done evil, he had better be punished than unpunished. To which may be added, 3. A third Socratic paradox or ideal, that bad men do what they think best, but not what they desire for the desire of all is towards the good. That pleasure is to be distinguished from good is proved by the simultaneousness of pleasure and pain, and by the possibility of the bad having in certain cases pleasures as great as those of the good, or even greater. Not merely rhetoricians, but poets, musicians, and other artists, the whole tribe of statesmen, past as well as present, are included in the class of flatterers. The true and false finally appear before the judgment seat of the gods below. The dialogue naturally falls into three divisions, to which the three characters of Gorgias, Paulus, and Callicles respectively correspond, and the form and manner change with the stages of the argument. Socrates is deferential towards Gorgias playful and yet cutting in dealing with the youthful Paulus, ironical and sarcastic in his encounter with Callicles. In the first division, the question is asked, what is rhetoric? To this there is no answer given, for Gorgias is soon made to contradict himself by Socrates, and the argument is transferred to the hands of his disciple Paulus, who rushes to the defense of his master. The answer has at last to be given by Socrates himself, but before he can even explain his meaning to Paulus, he must enlighten him upon the great subject of shams or flatteries. When Paulus finds his favorite art reduced to the level of cookery, he replies that at any rate rhetoricians, like despots, have great power. Socrates denies that they have any real power, and hence arise the three paradoxes already mentioned. Although they are strange to him, Paulus is at last convinced of their truth. At least, 
they seem to him to follow legitimately from the premises. Thus the second act of the dialogue closes. Then Callicles appears on the scene, at first maintaining that pleasure is good, and that might is right, and that law is nothing but the combination of the many weak against the few strong. When he is confuted, he withdraws from the argument, and leaves Socrates to arrive at the conclusion by himself. The conclusion is that there are two kinds of statesmanship, a higher and a lower, that which makes the people better, and that which only flatters them, and he exhorts Callicles to choose the higher. The dialogue terminates with a mythos of a final judgment, in which there will be no more flattery or disguise, and no further use for the teaching of rhetoric. The characters of the three interlocutors also correspond to the parts which are assigned to them. Gorgias is the great rhetorician, now advanced in years, who goes from city to city displaying his talents, and is celebrated throughout Greece. Like all the sophists in the dialogues of Plato, he is vain and boastful, yet he has also a certain dignity, and is treated by Socrates with considerable respect. But he is no match for him in dialectics. Although he has been teaching rhetoric all his life, he is still incapable of defining his own art. When his ideas begin to clear up, he is unwilling to admit that rhetoric can be wholly separated from justice and injustice, and this lingering sentiment of morality, or regard for public opinion, enables Socrates to detect him in a contradiction. Like Protagoras, he is described as of a generous nature. He expresses his approbation of Socrates' manner of approaching a question. He is quite one of Socrates' sort, ready to be refuted as well as to refute, and very eager that Callicles and Socrates should have the game out. He knows by experience that rhetoric exercises great influence over other men, but he is unable to explain the puzzle how rhetoric can teach everything and know nothing. Paulus is an impetuous youth, a runaway colt, as Socrates describes him, who wanted originally to have taken the place of Gorgias under the pretext that the old man was tired, and now avails himself of the earliest opportunity to enter the lists. He is said to be the author of a work on rhetoric, and is again mentioned in the Phaedrus, as the inventor of balanced or double forms of speech, compare Gorgias Symposium. At first he is violent and ill-mannered, and is angry at seeing his master overthrown, but in the judicious hands of Socrates he is soon restored to good humor, and compelled to assent to the required conclusion. Like Gorgias, he is overthrown because he compromises. He is unwilling to say that to do is fairer or more honorable than to suffer injustice. Though he is fascinated by the power of rhetoric, and dazzled by the splendor of success, he is not insensible to higher arguments. Plato may have felt that there would be an incongruity in a youth maintaining the cause of injustice against the world. He has never heard the other side of the question, and he listens to the paradoxes, as they appear to him, of Socrates with evident astonishment 
he can hardly understand the meaning of archelaus being miserable or of rhetoric being only useful in self-accusation when the argument with him has fairly run out callicles in whose house they are assembled is introduced on the stage he is with difficulty convinced that socrates is in earnest for if these things are true then as he says with real emotion the foundations of society are upside down in him another type of character is represented he is neither sophist nor philosopher but man of the world and an accomplished athenian gentleman he might be described in modern language as a cynic or materialist a lover of power and also of pleasure and unscrupulous in his means of attaining both there is no desire on his part to offer any compromise in the interests of morality nor is any concession made by him like thrasymachus in the republic though he is not of the same weak and vulgar class he consistently maintains that might is right his great motive of action is political ambition in this he is characteristically greek like anitus in the meno he is the enemy of the sophists but favors the new art of rhetoric which he regards as an excellent weapon of attack and defense he is a despiser of mankind as he is of philosophy and sees in the laws of the state only a violation of the order of nature which intended that the stronger should govern the weaker compare republic like other men of the world who are of a speculative turn of mind he generalizes the bad side of human nature and has easily brought down his principles to his practice philosophy and poetry alike supply him with distinctions suited to his view of human life he has a good will to socrates whose talents he evidently admires while he censures the puerile use which he makes of them he expresses a keen intellectual interest in the argument like anitus again he has a sympathy with other men of the world the athenian statesmen of a former generation who showed no weakness and made no mistakes such as miltiades themistocles pericles are his favorites his ideal of human character is a man of great passions and great powers which he has developed to the utmost and which he uses in his own enjoyment and in the government of others had critias been the name instead of callicles about whom we know nothing from other sources the opinions of the man would have seemed to reflect the history of his life and now the combat deepens in callicles far more than in any sophist or rhetorician is concentrated the spirit of evil against which socrates is contending the spirit of the world the spirit of the many contending against the one wise man of which the sophists as he describes them in the republic are the imitators rather than the authors being themselves carried away by the great tide of public opinion socrates approaches his antagonist warily from a distance with a sort of irony which touches with a light hand both his personal vices probably in allusion to some scandal of the day and his servility to the populace 
At the same time, he is in most profound earnest, as Chirophon remarks. Callicles soon loses his temper, but the more he is irritated, the more provoking and matter-of-fact does Socrates become. A repartee of his, which appears to have been really made to the omniscient Hippias, according to the testimony of Xenophon, memorabilia, is introduced. He is called by Callicles a popular declaimer, and certainly shows that he has the power, in the words of Gorgias, of being as long as he pleases, or as short as he pleases, compare Protagoras. Callicles exhibits great ability in defending himself and attacking Socrates, whom he accuses of trifling and word-splitting. He is scandalized that the legitimate consequences of his own argument should be stated in plain terms, after the manner of men of the world. He wishes to preserve the decencies of life, but he cannot consistently maintain the bad sense of words, and getting confused between the abstract notions of better, superior, stronger, he is easily turned round by Socrates, and only induced to continue the argument by the authority of Gorgias. Once, when Socrates is describing the manner in which the ambitious citizen has to identify himself with the people, he partially recognizes the truth of his words. The Socrates of the Gorgias may be compared with the Socrates of the Protagoras and Mino. As in other dialogues, he is the enemy of the sophists and rhetoricians, and also of the statesmen, whom he regards as another variety of the same species. His behavior is governed by that of his opponents. The least forwardness or egotism on their part is met by a corresponding irony on the part of Socrates. He must speak, for philosophy will not allow him to be silent. He is indeed more ironical and provoking than in any other of Plato's writings, for he is fooled to the top of his bent by the worldliness of Callicles. But he is also more deeply in earnest. He rises higher than even in the Phaedo and Crito, at first enveloping his moral convictions in a cloud of dust and dialectics. He ends by losing his method, his life, himself, in them. As in the Protagoras and Phaedrus, throwing aside the veil of irony, he makes a speech, but true to his character, not until his adversary has refused to answer any more questions. The presentiment of his own fate is hanging over him. He is aware that Socrates, the single real teacher of politics, as he ventures to call himself, cannot safely go to war with the whole world, and that in the courts of earth he will be condemned, but he will be justified in the world below. Then the position of Socrates and Callicles will be reversed. All those things unfit for ears polite which Callicles has prophesied as likely to happen to him in this life, the insulting language, the box on the ears, will recoil upon his assailant. Compare Republic, and the similar reversal of the position of the lawyer and the philosopher in the Theotetus. There is an interesting allusion to his own behavior at the trial of the generals after the battle of Arginusae which he ironically attributes to his ignorance of the manner in which a vote of the assembly should be taken. This is said to have happened last year, B.C. 406, 
and therefore the assumed date of the dialogue has been fixed at 405 BC, when Socrates would already have been an old man. The date is clearly marked, but is scarcely reconcilable with another indication of time, viz. the recent usurpation of Archelaus, which occurred in the year 413, and still less with the recent death of Pericles, who really died twenty-four years previously, 429 BC, and is afterwards reckoned among the statesmen of a past age, or with the mention of Nicias, who died in 413, and is nevertheless spoken of as a living witness. But we shall hereafter have reason to observe that although there is a general consistency of times and persons in the dialogues of Plato, a precise dramatic date is an invention of his commentators. Preface to Republic The conclusion of the dialogue is remarkable. 1. For the truly characteristic declaration of Socrates that he is ignorant of the true nature and bearing of these things, while he affirms at the same time that no one can maintain any other view without being ridiculous. The profession of ignorance reminds us of the earlier and more exclusively Socratic dialogues, but neither in them, nor in the Apology, nor in the Memorabilia of Xenophon, does Socrates express any doubt of the fundamental truths of morality. He evidently regards this among the multitude of questions which agitate human life as the principle which alone remains unshaken. He does not insist here any more than in the Phaedo on the literal truth of the myth, but only on the soundness of the doctrine which is contained in it, that doing wrong is worse than suffering, and that a man should be rather than seem. For the next best thing to a man's being just is that he should be corrected and become just. Also that he should avoid all flattery, whether of himself or of others, and that rhetoric should be employed for the maintenance of the right only. The revelation of another life is a recapitulation of the argument in a figure. 2. Socrates makes the singular remark that he is himself the only true politician of his age. In other passages, especially in the Apology, he disclaims being a politician at all, there he is convinced that he or any other good man who attempted to resist the popular will would be put to death before he had done any good to himself or others. Here he anticipates such a fate for himself, from the fact that he is the only man of the present day who performs his public duties at all. The two points of view are not really inconsistent, but the difference between them is worth noticing. Socrates is and is not a public man, not in the ordinary sense, like Alcibiades or Pericles, but in a higher one, and this will sooner or later entail the same consequences on him. He cannot be a private man if he would, neither can he separate morals from politics, nor is he unwilling to be a politician, although he foresees the dangers which await him but he must first become a better and wiser man, for he as well as Callicles is in a state of perplexity and uncertainty, and yet there is an inconsistency, for should not Socrates too have taught the citizens better than to put him to death? 
And now, as he himself says, we will resume the argument from the beginning. Socrates, who is attended by his inseparable disciple, Chirophon, meets Callicles in the streets of Athens. He is informed that he has just missed an exhibition of Gorgias, which he regrets, because he was desirous not of hearing Gorgias display his rhetoric, but of interrogating him concerning the nature of his art. Callicles proposes that they shall go with him to his own house, where Gorgias is staying. There they find the great rhetorician and his younger friend and disciple Paulus. Socrates, put the question to him, Chirophon. Chirophon, what question? Socrates, who is he? Such a question as would elicit from a man the answer, I am a cobbler. Paulus suggests that Gorgias may be tired, and desires to answer for him. Who is Gorgias? asks Chirophon, imitating the manner of his master Socrates. One of the best of men, and a proficient in the best and noblest of experimental arts, etc., replies Paulus, in rhetorical and balanced phrases. Socrates is dissatisfied at the length and unmeaningness of the answer. He tells the disconcerted volunteer that he has mistaken the quality for the nature of the art, and remarks to Gorgias that Paulus has learnt how to make a speech, but not how to answer a question. He wishes that Gorgias would answer him. Gorgias is willing enough, and replies to the question asked by Chirophon that he is a rhetorician, and in Homeric language boasts himself to be a good one. At the request of Socrates, he promises to be brief, for he can be as long as he pleases, and as short as he pleases. Socrates would have him bestow his length on others, and proceeds to ask him a number of questions, which are answered by him to his own great satisfaction, and with a brevity which excites the admiration of Socrates. The result of the discussion may be summed up as follows. Rhetoric treats of discourse, but music and medicine and other particular arts are also concerned with discourse. In what way, then, does rhetoric differ from them? Gorgias draws a distinction between the arts which deal with words and the arts which have to do with external actions. Socrates extends this distinction further and divides all productive arts into two classes. One, arts which may be carried on in silence, and two, arts which have to do with words, or in which words are coextensive with action, such as arithmetic, geometry, rhetoric. But still Gorgias could hardly have meant to say that arithmetic was the same as rhetoric. Even in the arts which are concerned with words there are differences. What then distinguishes rhetoric from the other arts which have to do with words? The words which rhetoric uses relate to the best and greatest of human things. But tell me, Gorgias, what are the best? Health first, beauty next, wealth third, in the words of the old song, or how would you rank them? The arts will come to you in a body each claiming precedence and saying that her own good is superior to that of the rest, how will you choose between them? 
I should say, Socrates, that the art of persuasion, which gives freedom to all men, and to individuals power in the state, is the greatest good. But what is the exact nature of this persuasion? Is the preserving retort. You could not describe Zeuxis as a painter, or even as a painter of figures, if there were other painters of figures. Neither can you define rhetoric simply as an art of persuasion, because there are other arts which persuade, such as arithmetic, which is an art of persuasion about odd and even numbers. Gorgias is made to see the necessity of a further limitation, and he now defines rhetoric as the art of persuading in the law courts and in the assembly about the just and unjust. But still there are two sorts of persuasion, one which gives knowledge and another which gives belief without knowledge and knowledge is always true, but belief may be either true or false. There is therefore a further question. Which of the two sorts of persuasion does rhetoric affect in courts of law and assemblies? Plainly that which gives belief and not that which gives knowledge, for no one can impart a real knowledge of such matters to a crowd of persons in a few minutes. And there is another point to be considered. When the assembly meets to advise about walls or docks or military expeditions, the rhetorician is not taken into counsel, but the architect or the general. How would Gorgias explain this phenomenon? All who intend to become disciples, of whom there are several in the company, and not Socrates only, are eagerly asking, about what then will rhetoric teach us to persuade or advise the state? Gorgias illustrates the nature of rhetoric by adducing the example of Themistocles, who persuaded the Athenians to build their docks and walls, and of Pericles, whom Socrates himself has heard speaking about the middle wall of the Piraeus. He adds that he has exercised a similar power over the patience of his brother Herodicus. He could be chosen a physician by the assembly if he pleased, for no physician could compete with a rhetorician in popularity and influence. He could persuade the multitude of anything by the power of his rhetoric. Not that the rhetorician ought to abuse this power any more than a boxer should abuse the art of self-defense. Rhetoric is a good thing, but like all good things, may be unlawfully used. Neither is the teacher of the art to be deemed unjust, because his pupils are unjust, and make a bad use of the lessons which they have learned from him. Socrates would like to know, before he replies, whether Gorgias will quarrel with him if he points out a slight inconsistency into which he has fallen, or whether he, like himself, is one who loves to be refuted. Gorgias declares that he is quite one of his sort, but fears that the argument may be tedious to the company. The company cheer, and Chirophon and Callicles exhort them to proceed. Socrates gently points out the supposed inconsistency into which Gorgias appears to have fallen and which he is inclined to think may arise out of a misapprehension of his own. The rhetorician has been declared by Gorgias to be more persuasive to the ignorant than the physician or any other expert, and he is said to be ignorant, and this ignorance of his is regarded by Gorgias as a happy condition, for he has escaped the trouble of learning. But is he as ignorant of just and unjust as he is of medicine or building?
Gorgias is compelled to admit that if he did not know them previously, he must learn them from his teacher as a part of the art of rhetoric. But he who has learned carpentry is a carpenter, and he who has learned music is a musician, and he who has learned justice is just. The rhetorician, then, must be a just man, and rhetoric is a just thing. But Gorgias has already admitted the opposite of this, viz. that rhetoric may be abused, and that the rhetorician may act unjustly. How is the inconsistency to be explained? The fallacy of this argument is twofold, for in the first place a man may know justice and not be just. Here is the old confusion of the arts and the virtues. Nor can any teacher be expected to counteract wholly the bent of natural character. And secondly, a man may have a degree of justice, but not sufficient to prevent him from ever doing wrong. Paulus is naturally exasperated at the sophism, which he is unable to detect. Of course, he says, the rhetorician, like everyone else, will admit that he knows justice. How can he do otherwise when pressed by the interrogations of Socrates? But he thinks that great want of manners is shown in bringing the argument to such a pass. Socrates ironically replies that when old men trip, the young set them on their legs again, and he is quite willing to retract if he can be shown to be in error, but upon one condition, which is that Paulus studies brevity. Paulus is in great indignation at not being allowed to use as many words as he pleases in the free state of Athens. Socrates retorts that yet harder will be his own case if he is compelled to stay and listen to them. After some altercation they agree, compare Protagoras, that Paulus shall ask and Socrates answer. End of part one. Recording by Kevin Johnson.